So I, I, I like sports, some better than others. Um, I would say wrestling and basketball are up there for me. So I'm gonna give you a basketball illustration, um, especially if, you know, it's good here that I'm in Utah and we have a decent basketball team. Maybe debatable, but the Jazz. I grew up in, in California where we had the Lakers. Kobe and Shaq were my heroes um, growing up in, in Cali. But so say you have two basketball teams, equal ability, maybe the Lakers and the Jazz, debatable. <laughs> so you have uh, two basketball teams, equal ability, competing as each one another. They're equal in every way, let's say. Talent, players, you know, they are equally matched team. But the only difference between these two teams is that one of all, I'll say all the people in one team are optimistic. They think they're going to win. Whereas the other team is pessimistic. They are convinced that they're going to lose. Who are you going to put your money on? The ones that think they're going to win or the ones that think they're going to lose? You're probably going to say, if you're a betting person, you're probably going to say, I'm going to put it on the people who are going to win. You know, that, that seems like we, we know inherently that pessimism is bad and that it holds us back in life. We, we know that. Um, I have seen pessimism hold back friends who were so talented and brilliant and they had such like negative outlooks on their success in their career. And so they could have been the best at their profession, but because they were so negative, they were held back. And they've done studies on this, that if you're a profoundly pessimistic person, that you end up dying faster, just statistically, not in every case, but optimistic people live longer, right? And so, whereas pessimistic people die earlier, that's kind of a little bit of a downer, but is, is, that's what the studies show. And, uh, but what about when you tie this to the issue of Christianity, the Christian worldview? So, for example, what about having an optimistic outlook on evangelism and the spread of the gospel? What about that? So should we have an optimistic view of the gospel? You say, well, Nate, you know, it doesn't matter if we have an optimistic view of how the gospel is going to spread. It doesn't matter if we have an optimistic view on how many people are going to get saved. None of that matters because you know what, Nate? We are commanded to evangelize. So it, this question of whether we should be optimistic about the spread of the gospel, the spread of the kingdom of God, doesn't really matter. We are commanded to do it, Nate, so we're going to do it. It doesn't matter about the outcome. Well, that is true. We are commanded to evangelize, to baptize, and disciple all nations. That's very true. We, we do know that it matters in terms of motivation to evangelize. If you believed, for instance, that following a command in your life was going to produce really good results, really good fruit, then you better believe you're going to be more motivated to follow it, aren't you? As opposed to, you know, following the command is not going to do anything for you. If you thought... Just imagine this. If you thought that no one was ever going to trust in Christ for their salvation, that no gospel presentation you would ever do would never result in anybody being saved, you, wouldn't, you would at least struggle. You would not probably evangelize. I mean, people struggle evangelizing anyways, right? I mean, it's already hard enough. But imagine if you knew that no one was going to respond. Now, what if you thought that many people what if you thought that if the gospel goes out, it goes out and it's going to do stuff, do you think you'll be more apt to evangelize more? 
I think you definitely would. Because if I, I think when I'm evangelizing, if I think, okay, it's very likely that I'm telling somebody about Jesus and it's very, very, very likely that they're going to receive Christ, I, I'm going to be honest with you. Me personally, I'm going to be a lot more motivated to evangelize because I'm like, you know, it's going to be, you know, it's a little awkward evangelizing. Every time I go get my hair cut, I'm stuck in a situation with my barber. It's like, are they going to accept Christ or give me a bad haircut? <laughs> kind of dicey, right? Russian roulette, you know, these are the sufferings of a pastor that I must endure. <laughs> so... Yeah, I, I mean, so it's awkward evangelizing, you know. Uh, one time I was evangelizing someone, it was not so awkward. I started sweating in my chair. I was like, I'm like, I think you're telling, I, the guys are cutting me that I'm like profusely sweating, you know. <laughs> it was so bad. But I'm, I'm going to take that, it's awkward to evangelize, it's difficult, it's a social risk. And so, but if I know that somebody is going to be impacted for all eternity, that I'm, 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 you know, ready to deal with the hot flashes and sweats in the barber chair for a little while, okay? You know, uh, I mean, it just gets pretty flashy with me. It's just hot, you know. And this is how optimism with the gospel works. Even if people end up rejecting the gospel, then you have this kind of optimistic attitude. This is how you're going to think. Well, I just probably planted a seed. God will likely use that later. Perhaps it will have impact on that person in eternity, maybe when they're struggling or going through something. Maybe my gospel presentation later on, God will use that in so many different ways. This is in contrast to like a wah, wah, kind of a Debbie Downer, pessimistic Eeyore kind of thing. See, this is why I don't evangelize. People always give me a weird response. There's no point doing this because it doesn't make any impact. Wah, wah, that kind of stuff. So don't tell me there isn't a difference. Anyone in the world can see there's world of difference between an optimistic view of the spread of the gospel and a pessimistic view of the spread of the gospel. And this is precisely what William Carey thought. He had an optimistic view of the gospel. He wrote this, I am a dreamer and continue to dream of what can and will be, expecting great things from God, attempting great things from God. And so he was very optimistic about what God was going to do. And it wasn't always easy to remain optimistic as a mission missionary to, to, to India. He is called the father of modern missions, and he brought the gospel to India. He broke through. But it wasn't easy because his wife went clinically insane and died. His son died all out in India, and yet he labored in India for seven years without a single convert. You're like, okay, time to pack it up. But you know, after years and years and years of hard work and optimism for bringing the gospel to India, he is now known as the father of modern missions. He brought the gospel to India after, after just setback after setback. Now, I want to be clear, optimism is good, but it has to be rooted in reality. If you're one of those guys, you think, you know, someone with a Peter Pan complex, like they're never going to die. People have that, right? And they just do all this crazy stuff. And they're like, I'm never going to die. Well, that, that optimism about you never dying is not really rooted in reality, and it ends up being foolish and ultimately destructive. So we want optimism grounded in something objective and real, not just like wishful thinking. And so what we're going to see this morning is the gospel and the spread of the kingdom is not grounded in like, let's just be optimistic, let's be wishful thinking. No, the optimism and the spread of the gospel is rooted objectively in God's word, rooted objectively in his promises. And we're going to see this in our verse by verse study uh, of Abraham and the promises to him and to his offspring and to the nations. Looking at Romans 4.13. 
For the promise to Abraham and his offspring is that they would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So the first thing about this promise is it's not based on Abraham's obedience, morality, law keeping. It's based on grace through faith alone. It's not based on him being good or measuring up. It's based on the grace and mercy of God. That's where this gracious promise comes from. And so the promise is, and you, it says it here, he would be the heir of the world. He and his offspring would be the heir of the world. Now, Paul does something very radical, and that's why I picked one verse to go over for this entire sermon. He does something very radical here that people point out. Initially, it was promised that Abraham, we all know, would get this land promise of Israel, right? And that's fulfilled. And his descendants would be heir of that. We, we understand that. But what Paul does here is instead of talking about, a, you know, a, a bit of real estate out in the Near East, what he does is he expands this promise to the world. He just deliberately expands it here. He changes it. And the word for, for world here is a Greek word, cosmos, which you get from John 3.16, God so loved the world. John 4, Jesus is the Savior of the world. That's the same Greek word, cosmos, and it's used here. So he says that he would be heir of the cosmos. And so, yeah, many New Testament scholars comment on this, on this radical presentation that Paul brings here to Romans 4.13. This is what renowned, and he actually passed on, but great New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce wrote about this verse in his commentary in Romans. When Abraham's heritage is delimited in geographical terms, it lies between Egypt and the Euphrates. We're talking about Israel here. But in the spiritual and permanent sense in which the promises are interpreted in the New Testament, it cannot be confined within such earthly frontiers. It's a worldwide as the gospel. Amazing. Now, it's pretty amazing that the do dominion and inheritance that God had Israel is going to expand to the whole world. From sea to sea, as Zacharias says, is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And this promise is also, I mean, this is also brought out by, um, not promise, but this is brought out by prominent uh, New Testament scholar, Yvette Harrison. He puts it like this in his work on Romans. The word, world, therefore, denotes the multitude of those in future generations who will follow Abraham in terms of his faith as rightful heirs. He will be the father in that sense that he is a father of their faith, since by that means they will be justified. Now, people hear this and they get confused for a number of reasons, and I understand why the confusion would be there. People make the assumption that, okay, well, is Paul trying to hedge his bets here? Because, you know... That land, Israel, I mean, he has to fulfill this land promise here. And so is he trying to switch it up because it wasn't really fulfilled? But if you look in Joshua 21.45, what God tells us in Joshua is that that land promise has already been fulfilled. That, those promises to Israel have been fulfilled in Joshua 21.45. Not one word of all the good promises the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Land promise is dealt with here. It's been fulfilled by God, by his grace and mercy. So Paul isn't changing the promise here because it didn't happen. No, no. Rather, he's expanding the promise in the original intention of Genesis. In other words, there are other promises to Abraham throughout the book of Genesis. And what Paul is doing by saying he's going to inherit the whole world is he's saying, I'm including all of those promises to Abraham, not just a land promise, not just to a land promise to a particular type of people. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this a bigger enchilada of the whole world here. And you see that in, in Genesis uh, 12, 
2 through 3. We're going to be looking at the whole enchilada of the promises here. Genesis 12, 2 through 3. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you, you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that word in Hebrew, all can mean most or majority, but that you get the, it's, it's not a few people. It's, it's, this is a massive impact here. Inheriting the world's a massive thing. So here, God says to Abraham, the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so we see this happening progressively, being fulfilled throughout human history. And this should give us great hope. This is a promise to Abraham that should bless us. And now we begin to understand why Paul says Abraham and his offspring would inherit the world because it says here, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the promise includes all nations being blessed through Abraham. So not only all families, but also nations, so a broader category than families. Genesis 18, 17 through 18. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So blessing to families, to nations here, all the families, all the nations of the earth. This is pretty broad. That's why Paul's expanding it out here. So what is a blessing? What is the blessing that families would receive? What is the blessing that nations would receive? And the Bible does not leave us in the dark on this issue. It clarifies it. We have the New Testament tell us what this blessing is explicitly in Galatians 3, 8 through 9. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that were declared righteous by faith alone, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So what's a blessing? The blessing is justification by faith alone, receiving salvation by trusting, receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is a blessing here. It's to all families, to nations, through grace and faith alone. So this is accomplished through Abraham because Christ, it says, is the seed of Abraham, according to Galatians chapter 3. And this promise, it's not just in Genesis. So you're like, okay, you only got Genesis stuff here, Nate. Is there anywhere else in the Bible that would even say something like this? And yeah, it is repeated throughout the Bible. I can just give you one, you know, down-to-earth example is Psalm 22, 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn. So people say, so this is only going to happen in heaven. And there's certainly some truth to that. But it, the earth is turning, repenting to the Lord. It doesn't happen in heaven. Everybody's already repented in heaven. We, you know, that's, that's going to happen already. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. So you wouldn't get this conclusion from watching the news, would you? This isn't the perspective you're going to get even from uh, various pastors in the Christian church. I have heard godly Christian uh, people say things like, God's just going to take the world that's in the vast majority of people straight to hell. Only a few are going to be saved. Only a few chosen people are going to be saved. God is this person who creates a world and just, boom, you know, 95% of people are just going to hell. And so that means the Christian church will fail and their evangelistic mission will fail to fulfill the Great Commission, which is to baptize and disciple all nations. We end up losing. And not only is this like profoundly like depressing and like kind of a failure pile in a sadness bowl, but it's really hard to wrap your head around. It's very doom and gloomy. 
And as I said, some well-known pastors, I would say these are brothers in Christ. They are well-known. They are faithful Christian churches. Um, don't take my word for it. Here's a real quote. This is a real quote. I've used it before. A real quote from one of the most well-liked and probably most watched conservative evangelical pastors in North America. This is his words, literally. Guess what? We don't win down here. We lose. You ready for that? We lose here. Get it? They killed Jesus. They killed the apostles. Now, if that isn't a giant gloom and doom festival, I don't know what is right there. Now, contrast these, those profoundly depressing words with a promise to Abraham, which commentators believe Paul to be referencing here in Romans 4, to include that inheritance, heirs of the world. Genesis 22, 17 through 18. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. A lot, of, a lot of stars in the heaven. Look it up on Google sometime. It's like trillions. And as the sands are in the seashore, think like, like there's like 70%, uh, you know, I mean, if you, I mean, if you look at, not 70%, but if you look at, count the grains in the, in the seashore, man, it's like the stars, trillions, tons, tons. And the offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That's what the Bible says. Because you have obeyed my voice. So, you read that, sound like we lose down here? It sounds like we're dominating over the kingdom of darkness here. The gates of your enemies here refers to the kingdom of darkness and the power of Satan. Jesus references this in Matthew 16, a very well-known verse. He says, the gates of hell will not prevail against the Christian church. And here it's talking about possessing the gates of your enemies here in Genesis 22. And, you know, if you watch Braveheart or any kind of like war movies, you know what's the last bit of defense if you have two armies going at it, the last bit of defense that, that you know, if, if, a, if you have like William Wallace coming in to conquer, say, English town, the last bit of defense they have is what? Their gates. You crack open those gates, that kingdom's going to fall big time. I just remember this scene from, I've seen Braveheart like over like 200 times and I just remember the scene of them like bashing in this, this gate and then once they got through it, they won because it, that's how war was back then. You knock out someone's gate, you pretty much own the town. You, you've, you've won the war, right? And so what this is saying is that Satan's final last defensive measure, the, his gate, the, the, his gates won't prevail against the Christian church. We will own him. We will own his gates. The church of Jesus Christ will just wreck the last defensive measure of Satan. That is something to get excited about. And that happens because the church is so great. It's like, we're so amazing. No, it happens because the death of Jesus Christ is just that powerful. It is powerful not only to save a few people. No, no, it's powerful to save tons of people, and it will. That is why in John chapter 4 it says Jesus is not just the Savior of like a few select chosen people. You know, like 1% of the population or 0.5% of the population. No, Jesus is the Savior of the world. And that means we should, as Christians, expect that Christianity become a, to be the largest world religion. And what do you find out? Lo and behold, you do some research, that's what you find. Which, by the way, what, and this confirms Christianity is true, by the way, because this was predicted thousands and thousands of years before the, the just massive expansion of Christianity throughout the past 2,000 years. And this is one of the reasons why I believe the Bible, one of the reasons I trust God and His promises, because what it says comes true. 
The people in the Bible are true prophets because what they actually say comes true. Pew Research confirms this. This is a summarizing their, their findings. According to 2015 Pew Research Center, it says by 2050, the Christian population is expected to be 2.9 billion. According to the 2017 Pew Research Survey, by 2060, Christians will remain the world's largest religion. The number of Christians will reach 3.05 billion, or 31.8%. This is not something that just peer research, and you can look this up anywhere. There's a recent, I was reading a pretty cool status report done by Gordon Conwell Seminary, Lifeway Research. Their results, this is 2020, right? The sad year. This is, this is a really updated research year. In this article, it says, this is the title article, 10 Encouraging Trends of Global Christianity in 2020. We all need some encouraging trends in 2020, don't we? Um, I know it's been two years, but you know, just kind of recovering up here. <laughs> This is what they write about the growth of Christianity. The number of evangelicals in the world has increased from 112 million in 1970 to 386 million in 2020. You talk to somebody in America, they're like, we're all going to die, you know, kind of thing. Like, you know, it's all, we're all shrinking. It's getting smaller and smaller. It's like, not when you look at this. Global evangelicalism is predominantly a non-white movement within Christianity is becoming increasingly more so with 77% of all evangelicals living in the global south in 2020. They go on to write, currently Christianity is the only religion with more than 2 billion followers. In the next five years, Islam will cross that threshold. Hinduism recently topped 1 billion. By 2050, Christianity, Christianity will be the first to reach 3 billion more than 3.4 billion people will be Christian then, according to Gordon Conwell's projections. And you might think to you, yeah, Pastor Nate, but you know what? Atheism, secularism, that's growing like never before. So there isn't much hope to be, there isn't much, much hope to be had here, Nate. There's not much going on. Well, that isn't true either. According to the very same LifeWay study, they write, Christianity is growing five times the rate as atheism. There are fewer atheists around the world, 147 million, than there were in 1970, 165 million. So you look at these projections, you're like, wow, I would not get this from the news. Goodness gracious. In recent decades, atheism has started to experience minor growth, but only at a 0.22% rate. Very small. Christianity, on the other hand, is growing to a 1.19% rate and is expected to continue to grow in its adherence globally, which is growing faster than the human population. And so I believe Christianity, given this and given the promises of, I mean, it's not just these surveys, I believe. I believe objectively the promises of God in Genesis, in the Bible, that the nations will receive the blessing of justification by faith alone. It will be a blessing to the nations. And that means that God is going to reach people groups, which may even seem incomprehensible, may, may seem unreachable to us from a human perspective. But here's the thing. If you, if you don't believe in the promises of God, What's going to happen is you're going to form human opinion, human ideas that, okay, yeah, I don't believe in those promises, but, you know, those people, they're so messed up. No one's going to reach those people. But you see, if you cling to these promises, these op op optimistic, grounded in reality promises, then we have more than enough reason that the people that you think, the people that you deem will never be saved and never have a chance, those people will be saved. 
God will work eventually through his gospel. You know, Elizabeth Elliot, I don't know if you've ever heard of her, but she's amazing. Just look at her life, just in a profoundly amazing person. She had an optimistic view of reaching people so much so that she was able to reach a violent, savage tribe that murdered her very own husband before she arrived. It's like someone's murder, murdering my husband, I'm, I'm, I'm out. But she kept on going. She worked in the area to reach this extremely violent tribe, murdered uh, Jim Elliott, her husband, and his, and his friends with him. And that tribe that killed her own husband ended up accepting Christ including the men who actually murdered him. Like the men that murdered Jim Elliot became Christian. Incredible. You see, as I said, most people in Elizabeth Elliot's shoes, you'd be too upset to evangelize. You're like, I'm just giving up. I'm packing it out. And people are like, yeah, I think that's fair. You know, you need a golf clap. That was pretty rough. Let's just say that's tough. Kept on going, trusted in God to work through the power of the gospel. And now this brutal tribe Christian. This is a good reminder to us that no group is too far. We can't let our petty, pessimistic emotions trump the promises of God. I have heard well-meaning Christians say, oh, you know, that group of people out here in Utah, that's these people over here, you know, you can never reach these people. They cannot be reached. Not true. Because there was nobody more hostile to the Christian faith than a man named Saul of Tarsus who zealously captured and murdered Christians. We now know Saul to be the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest Christians who ever lived. You see, it's God's truth and promises that continually destroy these pessimistic rationalizations that we give our negative excuses not to share Jesus with others. I've also heard this from Christians. This is true. People in other false religions, they, they, people, I've heard many people say this. Oh, that whole family, they're Muslim. His father is a Muslim. His great-grandfather was a Muslim. And it goes back, they've had generations and generations of Muslims. There's no way that guy is going to be open to the gospel. So why bother evangelizing him? Well, that, the, that tribe that Elizabeth Elliot preached to, those people, they had, you know, grandfather, they had generations following this false religion of brutality and violence. And yet the power of the gospel broke through. So no person, this should always be a reminder to us, no person, no group, we should never give up on. We should, no group is too far gone. Nothing is impossible with God. All things are possible with the power of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. This is beautifully reflected in the true story of John G. Patton. He wanted to bring the gospel to the murderous cannibal tribes of the Herbrates Islands. And let me tell you, he was surrounded by a band of Debbie Downers and Eeyores. And they were, people were trying to dissuade him not to go. They said, it's impossible to convert such a wicked, murderous, savage tribe. And John would be like, you know, they would always say, you know, you're taking your wife and kids out here. They're going to get killed. Are you crazy? Are you literally crazy? He got criticism from this, from, you know, people would say you're going to be eaten alive. Uh, there was one person named Mr. Dixon. He said to him, you know, to John Patton, he said, you'll be eaten alive by cannibals. This is what Patton responded. Mr. Dixon is an older guy. You are very advanced in years now. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. There to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live... 
and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus. It will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in that great day of my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours and in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. You see, John was not a pessimist like his critics. He was a passionate, concerted optimist about the spread of the gospel. He wrote, I was sustained, see his care and love for people who are lost. I was sustained by the lofty aim which burned all these years bright within my soul, namely to be owned and used by him for salvation of perishing men. The wail and claims of the heathen were constantly sounding in my ears. I saw them perishing for a lack of knowledge of the true God and his son, Jesus. You see, but when Patton got to that island, he himself was utterly shocked by the brutality, cruelty, and immorality of these people. He first went to the island of Tanya, did not have any success there, not much success at all. He was uh, driven out of the, of the island without having any impact. But something impacted him. His wife and son died on that island. Usually, when your family dies, it's time to pack up the bags. No one's going to judge you for that. Goodness. Most people will give up. But nothing could stop his optimistic spread of the gospel. He then went to the other cannibal island, tried his success in another part of the Hebrides Islands called the island of Anwa. And he lived among this, these violent and cruel natives. He learned their language, translated the Bible for them, proclaiming the gospel of grace to them while announcing God's judgment on their sins. And the only way of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And guess what happened? The entire island converted. And they didn't just convert island itself became a beacon and light of godliness and on this island they were passionate to train missionaries and there they sent the missionaries to the island Tanya where Patton's wife and son they trained him on this other Hebrides island and sent him to another one where his wife and son had died and then that island came to know Jesus as well don't tell me it doesn't make a difference Having a love for people and having an optimistic spread of the gospel makes all the difference in the world. It's a huge, huge difference. You see, we as Christians here in Utah should have a very optimistic view of the spread of the gospel. So let us continue to work together, spread the gospel of Jesus Christ here in the Salt Lake Valley. I want to close with reminding us again of the words of the great William Carey. Expecting great things from God, attempting great things for God. So let us as a church pray and expect that God is going to do great things in Utah. And it starts right here. If you've come for the very first time and you've not accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you trust and believe and receive of him, repent, trust in him, all of your sins will be forgiven and you will be clothed with an immovable coat of righteousness that will never leave you, that will, that will be there for you and God will always love you if you trust, receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I pray that if you don't know him, that you would trust in him this morning and it will change your life. Let's pray.